Welcome to Deeper, a podcast of Wollongong Baptist Church. The podcast aims to follow the sermon series and to take our congregation deeper into God's Word. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Leffley and I'm here today with Pastor Mark Roberts. In full transparency, Mark, I'm not at my best. How are you? I'm closer to my best than I was on Sunday. Oh, so good. we've swapped places. Yeah, I was pretty crook on the weekend. Uh, well, really over this last week. So I'm, I'm on the mend. Sustained by prayer, I heard. Yeah. yeah. We, thank, thankfully, the congregation prayed for me and uh, we got through. So, Great. Yeah. Sorry to hear you're going downhill, though. Oh, I'm just a bit weary. That's all. Okay. <laughs> it's the end of term vibe, I think. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think every teacher feels that right <laughs> for now. For sure. Mm. But there's holidays in sight and more holidays than most people get. So I shouldn't whinge too, too loudly. <laughs> <I think>. Yep. <laughs> Echo that sentence. Yes, definitely. Let's get stuck straight into the chapter, what are we are? Chapter 15? 14. 14. 14. I'm overexcited. Chapter 14 of Acts. All right. Let's do it. Um, there was a, pa- a verse in this passage that talked about the gospel being confirmed by miracles, mm. and that seems to be a pattern throughout Acts. Yep. Um, what does it mean? What's the relationship between miracles and the gospel? Yeah. Um, I, so verse 3 is the verse you're referring to, uh, where they're speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. And it's one of the most explicit verses in all of Acts that explains the relationship between miracles and preaching. Um, Sometimes you hear of the apostles going in and performing signs and wonders and miracles and healings and all those sort of things without much explanation as to really why God has enabled his messengers to do that. But here we're told it's specifically for the purpose of confirming the message that they preach. So the miracles in and of themselves are not kind of the end game. The preaching of the gospel is the end game and the conversion of people under that preaching. Um, And so I think what that verse does is it kind of acts as a bit of a controlling verse for how Mm. you read the miracles and other things uh, in the rest of Acts, that this seems to be God's purpose here and it's similar with um, the the messengers Jesus sends out uh, that they will cast out demons they will do all these kinds of miraculous things um, but it's it's in order to validate them as messengers with a message uh, and that this message carries God's authority behind it and people therefore ought to listen so the key kind of takeaway I think from that is that the the miracles are not um, in and of themselves, uh, they're not self-interpreting. They yeah, need right. explanation. Yeah. Uh, and so anybody who sort of thinks, well, that's the that's what I'm here to do, I've come to bring healing and whatever, um, I'd say, well, you're actually missing the biblical pattern, which is that those things are for the purpose of giving the, the message of the gospel a hearing and a believable hearing. Um, and so I think... Um, yeah, sometimes you do hear that uh, mm. in certain sort of circles of the Christian community. Um, it place a greater emphasis on signs, wonders, and healings and things like that. But I would say um, it, it's true in our own lives that our actions uh, as Christians are not self-interpreting. They need explanation. So, for example, you you if you want to, you've heard that phrase, uh, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Oh you yeah, it's attributed to Francis of Assisi, which I don't think he actually ever said it, but that's the kind of misconception. <laughs> but um, it's a complete nonsense because you can't preach the gospel through actions. Your actions can give 
validation to the preaching of the gospel, but they, they themselves do not actually speak because people misinterpret, as happens in this chapter yeah. when they heal the lame man in verses 8 to 10. They perform this miracle and the crowd don't understand what's going on there. So there needs to be an explanation that accompanies the miracle, the action, in order for the gospel to actually reach these people. So I would say, you know, I think the application of this for us, which I sort of um, thought about during the preparation for the sermon, but yeah. didn't end up including it uh, for the sake of time, is that um, sometimes we have this attitude as Christians of, well, I'll just I'll show love, I'll show kindness, I'll show moral integrity to my non-Christian friends. And that will kind of testify to the gospel somehow. I want to say, no, actually, it's not enough just to do that because those non-Christian friends will see you abstaining from getting drunk. And they won't say, oh, it's because Sarah's saved by grace and she understands that yeah. her life is not her own. She's been purchased by Christ. They'll say, oh, it's because Sarah's self-righteous and she thinks she's better than me. So you need to give an explanation for why you behave that way. Any any action as a Christian like that, if you want it to point to the gospel, needs an explanation as well, as we kind of see modelled for us in chapter 14. I think that's that's the takeaway I took from uh, that experience anyway. I hadn't even thought to apply it to just how our actions and words need to work together in mm. sharing the gospel. I just jumped straight to the question of, well, if I'm, aren't I a messenger too and I don't perform <laughs> miracles, am I missing something? Yeah, is, yeah. is there a question there too? Or? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, and again, there are certain circles of the Christian community who would say that um, – that we ought to expect these things. I just think it's a, uh, it's not promised to us. It's promised specifically to the apostles and uh, disciples more generally. I think even elsewhere in the New Testament, you see examples of the, the message of the gospel going out without any reference to the performing of signs and wonders. Specifically, you know, the, the, the explanation seems to be in Acts that you're seeing these things on the frontier where the message of the gospel is going somewhere new. And you do hear about this in, in our world in the present day as well, that quite often the um, manifestation of, of miracles and things like that happens in places where perhaps the scriptures are not translated into uh, local language or the gospel's never reached there before and there's some mm. demonstration of God's power at that time. Yeah, how much you make of those reports, I don't really know. But um, I don't think we ought to expect here in Australia that every time we go to preach the gospel that somehow we should see some sign of God powerfully working and doing some miracle kind of thing. I just don't think that's promised to us. No, that's fair enough. Yeah. I'm really encouraged, in fact, by the thought that while I might not be performing miracles, I do still have the opportunity to confirm the words I speak yeah. with the actions that I live out. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. They're, they're, they're a complementary kind of a relationship there between the deeds and the words. But it's it, the, the words are the non-negotiable part Definitely, uh, yeah, if we're going to preach the gospel to people. Wonderful. On words, I mean, um, in verse 1 it talks about Paul and Barnabas, how they spoke so effectively and people mm. are, are turned to faith. Um, it seems to put a real emphasis on the work that those two guys are doing, yeah. but we know that God gives faith. How, yeah. how are we supposed to interpret that? Yeah, and this is uh, something we wrestled with as a staff team, actually, in the week leading up to it, because <clears throat> it just a few verses earlier, at the end of chapter 13, verse 48, was uh, Paul's preaching there, uh, we, it says that when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Very strong mm, emphasis. That, I remember it from home group. Yeah. And that's all, that was ringing in my mind too when yeah. I saw this verse. Um, but here, uh, Luke is happy to say that somehow it was in the the way in which Paul and Barnabas spoke, the manner, the words, they, the arguments they formed, that convinced people such that they believed. 
if it's in the Bible, they're both true. Yeah. And so how do you kind of hold those two things together? Like a lot of things, I think, in the Christian life, there's a tension there. Um, on on one level, I want to um, say, f- well, I want to say first and foremost, God is the God of salvation. He is the one who appoints people to eternal life and predestines some to believe. And so we must not question that or qualify that. But by the same token, we know from our experience to be true that if we make a total hash of it, we shouldn't expect that somebody's going to understand our words. If I come to you and speak Greek, well, then you're not going to understand the words I say. So my performance, my actions, my choices in that moment do have a direct effect on the outcome Mm. of your belief or understanding or whatever. Likewise, if I'm just like a super offensive jerk in the way that I present the gospel to you, I shouldn't expect that it's going to – can't just say, oh, well, God's the God of salvation. You can use it. Yeah, yeah, because he could, but he won't. Um, So in in our lived experience, we understand that the way we do a job – has an effect on the outcome. We don't just wash our hands of it and say, well, God's in control. He's going to use it mm. no matter what, which I think means we've got to, we've got to hold those two things together uh, prayerfully and uh, uh, we've got to ask the God of salvation to work salvation in the people we speak to. And we've got to have a, a confident rest in that at the end of the day. But likewise, we've got to labor hard to speak as effectively as we possibly can yeah. and to, to be wise and shrewd with our words and all that sort of thing. So theologically, that's called compatibilism. It's the idea that both God is sovereign and our actions and choices actually really do influence the outcomes in the world under God and that there's some interaction between those thing, two things. We don't completely control the outcome, but neither are we completely um, disconnected from whatever the outcomes of our labours are. There's some in, some way in which we impact or influence the outcomes of, say, people coming to believe, um, but we still want to be able to say that God is sovereign over all of this. Yeah. So it's a tension. Just it's a real tension, yeah. yeah. But I think you, the way I kind of live with that is go to sleep at the end of a Sunday and trust that God is going to work what he's going to work in people's hearts as they've heard the message that we've preached and that sort of thing, but work really hard during the week to try and speak as well as I possibly can. And, you know, that's how I, I was going to say that this conversation has really made me appreciate thinking back to talking with Dave Craft and how many hours he put yeah, into his yeah, sermon yeah. that he did that work so faithfully. Yeah, and obviously yeah. you and Rod and Ken yeah. do that work faithfully every week. There, there is a danger, I suppose, of, of leaning too far in either direction. Mm-hmm of laziness perhaps or being a bit slapshot if you trust so much in the sovereignty of God that well it doesn't matter what I say I'll just I'll, I'll put I'll throw it out there and you know God will do what he wants or the kind of neurotic anxiety and uh, of feeling like it's all on your shoulders yes. well neither of those things can be true it's, there's got to be a, a middle ground there yeah I certainly remember um, putting off doing a youth group talk because I really felt that weight of responsibility and probably lacked trust that God could use my words. Yeah. Yeah. In my inexperience, that's what, that's what it was born of and real anxiety out of inexperience. It's a tough thing to to hold in balance. And uh, I think anybody who's in the business of sharing the gospel is going to sort of butt up against this reality pretty quickly. And yet Paul and Barnabas, they apparently nailed it in chapter 14. Praise God. (laughs) Wonderful. Um, how are we to balance this notion of kind of self-preservation? You know, Paul and Barnabas fled Iconium, yeah. um, but also with the expectation that there will be hardship and trouble and opposition. Yeah. Um, I could probably give the same answer to this question as I gave the last one in that it's a tension mm-hmm. that we have to hold in balance in the Christian life. That, um, Yeah, on the one hand, uh, Paul and Barnabas, the presentation of their leaving Iconium because they found out they were going to get stoned to death, 
Luke doesn't include that and critique it as if they made the wrong choice. It's just presented sort of neutrally in the text, like that's a fine thing for them to do. So I take it that we're supposed to see that that instinct of self-preservation of I'll live to preach another day, so let me just, you know, step away from this dangerous situation, uh, as that's a valid choice for a believer to make. Mm. Um, but by the same token, uh, we also have to see Paul and Barnabas going straight back into the firing line choosing to enter into a dangerous situation as well. So they, they do both. They enter into and exit out of dangerous situations, and both are okay. Both are valid choices as Christians. I think what, what that tension does is it means that we must never, assume, never think that uh, God wants me, that my only choice for obedience to God in, in a difficult situation is to stay put and to take the hits. I don't think that's our only choice, yeah. Very, almost never, in fact, that actually choosing to um, wipe the dust off your feet and head, head elsewhere is actually okay. And again, we see Jesus' disciples being told by Jesus to do that when he sends out the 12 and the 72. If the town doesn't accept you, wipe the dust off your feet and move on. So that, that instinct of self-preservation and in ministry as well, actually I had a conversation with somebody on Sunday who'd come out of quite a difficult ministry situation, and they were wrestling with this, this exact question of, um, how, should I have stayed put? Yeah. Was it right for me to leave? And uh, I said, no, I think it's perfectly valid to step away from a situation where you're being hurt or where the, the opposition to the gospel is so strong that you know no longer are you supposed to cast your pearls before pigs kind mm. of thing. It's time to, to stop and to cease and to step away. Um, but by the same token, <clears throat> I think our tendency is not going to be, our default is not going to be, oh, we're going to choose to stay put and be martyrs and take the hits no. for Jesus. We're going to- I love lean- being safe. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's our that's our default. It will be to say, oh, well, I'll, I won't take that opportunity yet because it's going to, uh, you know, I'll get pushback on it and that sort of thing. And I think we, we retreat to the kind of self-preservation for defense sure. too quickly. And so maybe what we need to hear is the boldness of Paul being willing to dust himself off after being stoned and head straight back to Derby mm. and keep going. And uh, we need a little bit more of that kind of steel in our spine to make us be willing to suffer a little bit more for yes. the sake of the gospel. So, again, there's a tension there and there's not a one-size-fits-all answer. It's dependent on circumstances. And I don't think um, this is something that we need to fret too much about because both paths – stepping into danger, stepping away from danger are legitimate uh, choices for the Christian given different circumstances. So I think it's a good thing for people to reflect on. Where's my tendency there and does it need to be corrected? Do I need to be open to the alternative a little bit more than I am currently maybe? I liked that expression you used of living to preach another day because Mm. I think if I were to ever flee a stoning, it would be to live to go quiet. (laughs) Yeah. 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 That'd be the temptation, wouldn't it? It would, it's yes. rem- it, it is completely mind-boggling that Paul and Barnabas don't press the eject button at that point and say, oh, well, missionary trip's over. Yeah. We tried, it failed, and uh, that's it. But- it's incredible. I, I was astounded the whole way through this chapter at all the places that they've returned to. I know they do make converts along the way, so it's not all bad news, but yeah. there's just so much persecution, and they yeah. just keep going back into yeah. these towns. Yeah. I, I'm still reeling from it. Um <laughs> Was the experience at Lystra, what a weird story that was anyway, yeah. uh, was it a genuine misunderstanding for people that were just ignorant of the gospel or is this another incidence of kind of demonic opposition, a bit like um, LMS, although that was obviously a bit more obvious and this yeah. maybe a bit more a bit subtle. More yeah. um, the text doesn't really 
explain it or give kind of the origin of it. And as, as I shared the sort of the background to that story and the, the mythology around Zeus, Zeus and Hermes coming down, Luke doesn't see fit to kind of include that detail in the text. So That's I take unhelpful. it. That, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not necessary to know those things um, to interpret it. Um, so I want to be kind of careful to like give a diagnosis about why that happened mm-hmm. because the Bible doesn't um, give me the answer to that question. I can speculate. Um, I think that um, on a general level, I would say any um, worship of idols is itself demonic. So the worship of false gods is demons are behind those things. Okay. Um, I think that the the Bible is quite clear about that. Certainly in the Old Testament, the worship of idols is linked in a number of places, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus particularly, to uh, demonic activity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think even in, in um, the New Testament, you get some links about some, some clues that that's what's going on as well. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, uh, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. I mean, in that context, I think he's perhaps talking about worldliness uh, or false doctrines like perversions, heresies of of the gospel. But I think there's a a broad concept going on there that demons are active in leading people to believe things other than the true gospel. Mm -hmm. So, you know, New Testament and Old Testament, I think, would both say that that kind of worship of idols is a demonic thing. And so I guess I'm relatively comfortable to say that the the opposition, the pushback and the, the chaos caused there in Lystra was demonic in nature, uh, yeah, but I probably wouldn't go to the stake for, on that one and, uh, you know, bet my bottom dollar on it. But it is interesting to speculate, and I think what it does is perhaps force us to ask the question about things that we might view as neutral or, you know, 1 Corinthians 8 uh, says that we know that an idol is nothing in the world at all. Right? Yeah. And I think a lot of Christians have that attitude of like, oh, well, you know, the Buddhists are worshipping, they've got statues and Hindus have got this and that and the other. Oh, it's nothing in the world. It's nothing at all. And we just sort of hand wave it a bit. But actually, I think the, the biblical presentation is that there are demonic activities demo- de- and uh, influence sort of behind these false religions and false idols. And so maybe we need to just be a little bit more serious-minded about those things and not just hand wave them. Certainly we know that Christ has power over those things. We did not fear those things. But when it says that, when 1 Corinthians 8 says that an idol is nothing in the world, it, it doesn't mean, oh, well, there's no such thing as a false god or a, you know, a, an evil spiritual influence. Certainly the Bible says that those things are real and they lie behind such things. So perhaps we should be a little bit more cautious about them. Yeah, it certainly adds some weight, doesn't it, to mm. thinking about whatever personal idols we yeah. might have. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think that will... Caused me to pause a bit. Yeah. You know, my my idols, I think, are probably really subtle, vague yeah. things. Yeah. Galatians talks about greed being mm. idolatry, and I think for us it, it, in Western countries, it is those um, idols of culture rather than yes. religious idols that are going to be the ones that um, we bow down to, so to speak. For sure. And I think even there, you would say that still, if if something is being elevated to the status of an idol, that there is a uh, that the enemy is behind that in some sense. So yeah, we ought to be a little bit more suspicious perhaps. Yeah, it would definitely make me more wary in yeah. my day to day, I think. Yeah. Um, when Paul responds to this really bizarre situation, he kind of gives this mini sermon yeah. and he starts a creation. <laughs> yeah. Why doesn't he just talk about Jesus? Yeah. Um, I, I, th- I suspect, again, I'm um, speculating here, I suspect 
that he would have done. He would have gotten to Jesus okay. eventually. Because it's not in there. <laughs> no, it's a three-verse sermon and he gets cut off. And so, um, But I think he starts at creation for the same reason that the Bible starts at creation, which is that if you are um, a f- without reference to uh, the history of the God of Israel and his work in the world, uh, and you needed to know where you stood in relation to him and how you have a need for a saviour, you, you must first understand that you are accountable to a creator and that you've wronged him and you've, you've kicked him off the throne. And, yeah. uh, and so I think that's what Genesis 1 to 11 are trying to achieve in large part is teaching us our place in the universe and our moral accountability to God. I think that's what Paul's trying to do here. You know, it would have been nice to see this, you know, Act Two and Act Three of his sermon, but we don't get to see that. So I think um, quite often, if, if, for example, we're talking with people who are atheistic in their worldview, you perhaps do need to start a couple of, uh, a little bit further upstream with the concept of God as a creator, because the concept of Jesus as saviour makes no sense if you don't see... A need for one. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think I think that's what Paul's doing, is trying to establish their moral culpability. Um, and as he says in verse 16, in the past, God let all, na- all nations go their own way. Implication is, this is a God you're answerable to, and you mm. can't just ignore him kind of thing. I think there's hints that that's what he's trying to get at in the sermon. Yeah, but we only get a snippet. I'm just um, always amazed that Paul seems so clever because Rod talked about him playing a game almost with the Jews when mm. he walks them through Jewish history because yeah. he kind of preaches the way that the Jewish leaders would have preached. Yeah. So he's won them and then he whoops, and then he brings in Jesus. Yeah. Um, but then now he's talking to Gentiles and yeah. so he doesn't start with Jewish history because that would be you know, I mean, they, they don't know yeah. what they're talking <laughs> yeah. about there. So yeah. he starts at creation, I think. Yeah. I don't know that I... I'm so equipped and so prepared all yeah. the time to know what a person needs yeah. to hear and when, but he seems to be ready with yeah. an answer. I mean, yeah. certainly the way that these chapters are presented is that Paul is sort of spontaneously yes. like <laughs> dropping these truth bombs wherever he goes. But this whole missionary journey takes place over the two to three years. And so, you know, what we're getting recorded here are summarised versions of what he did and said and, and that sort of thing. And so you would expect maybe as Paul and Barnabas are travelling along the road, they're thinking, oh, we're heading out into Lystra here. There's no synagogue. How are we going to help these people to, mm. to understand the, who Jesus is and to turn to him? Well, we probably need to start with by helping them to understand the creator. And so I would expect they probably strategized and planned yes. and who knows? Maybe Paul wrote a manuscript. Maybe he preached, you know, from a manuscript, and uh, he'd already done his work of exegesis and writing the thing before he got to Lystra. So that <laughs> it's not as good a story no, if you include those bits, though, is it? <laughs> I can see why the Bible was written the way it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, why is it that Paul and Barnabas return to Lystra, Antioch, and Iconium? Mm. Could they not send someone else? I mean, they need a rest, and yeah. also they're recognised now and not liked by a lot of people. Wouldn't you send yeah. someone that's new and fresh and Ready to be persecuted? I don't know. I feel sad for them. (laughs) Yeah, um, that's a really good question. Um, Again, Luke doesn't kind of give us an answer. Um, My hunch is that, uh, you know, Paul's relationship with the churches that he plants and uh, the Christians who he sort of converts is one of a kind of a father father figure. That's how he describes himself to the Corinthians. Um, They have many guardians, but not many fathers. And uh, that is him. And so I think the answer is perhaps Paul's love has compelled him to go and do this, that he wants to see them strengthened and established in the faith 
persevering and that sort of thing. And as a father with a child, he's just not going to abandon them. Um, I, I wonder as well, one of the dynamics you see time and time again in the New Testament is the kind of the questioning of the authority of the leader, and particularly in Corinthians, um, but also in um, First and Second Timothy, the question of will the congregation actually trust and listen to the, the God-appointed leader that's been given to them in, mm-hmm. say, Timothy, for example. And so I think it perhaps would have been more difficult if Paul and Barnabas had come through Planet of the Church and then here comes someone else who they've right. never met before to come and, like, help them to, you know, bed things down and to grow and mature. Perhaps it's just it would have been quicker and easier for Paul and Barnabas to be the messengers there and to help these churches. They've already got the authority. Yeah, yeah. and one of the things that's listed for them that, that they do there is to establish elders, which is to hand over authority to local leaders mm. who can then lead and shepherd the church. And so uh, I imagine that process would have been much more difficult if it was Apollos or whoever had, sure. had just come through and done that thing. But I certainly feel that, like, oh, gosh, it, it would be so easy to justify just, like, heading back to Antioch yeah. and, and tag-teaming with someone else who can go back and strengthen the churches and fly under the radar and stuff. But, yeah, it's remarkable, again, that he, he doesn't that do that. Yeah. Um, and you've alluded now to this um, appointing of elders. Yeah. Is this the first time that elders are ever appointed in, in the uh, New Testament? or is uh, we Elders are mentioned earlier in okay. the Book of Acts, but I think the, the appointing here is... Seems f- significant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it is the first time it's explained like this. Okay. Um, it's one of those interesting ones where um, we have some image uh, across the New Testament of the process by which eldership elders were selected, but the data is pretty limited. And so, even churches these, even our church, we have we have to make some sort of prudent decisions about the manner in which those things happen because the New Testament doesn't actually kind of prescribe for us too rigidly. Uh, how those elders are are selected. There does seem to be some sense in which uh, there's a validation or a selection of the elders fr- amongst the church themselves. The church must willingly recognise and submit to these men. This is not just a imposed on them from the outside kind of a, a process going on here. But there's so little details given to it here in Acts 14 that we'd, we'd have to start looking at other passages if we want to sort of fill out the picture of how does that appointing happen and, and that sort of thing, which is a worthwhile Topic, but perhaps beyond the beyond the purpose, at least of Acts chapter fourteen, yeah. it's not it's not trying to give us a, a manifesto about how um, you know church polity works in this regard. It's that's that's not the purpose of the chapter. The purpose of the chapter is the opposition to the gospel and the perseverance for the sake of seeing people come to know Christ. That's it. and so incidental detail, I suppose you'd say. Sure. So the purpose here is just to appoint people of authority. Is that? What it is yeah, that well, we win trust with yeah, the so church. I don't. And an elder uh, is a shepherd in in the New Testament. It's the certainly one Peter five is paints the picture of the elder as shepherding the flock. And so these fledgling Christians in all these towns need leaders. It's it's the normative practice as you look through the New Testament that every church has their own elders. And so for these people to continue to stand firm and to grow and to continue to reach out with the gospel. Uh, there needs to be godly leadership in those places, people who are going to sacrificially love the flock like Jesus does. And so that's the role that's given to the elders there. Again, even though it's not the, the focus of Acts 14, it, mm. it fits with the broader picture of elders as being there to guard and to guide and to feed the flock uh, of whom they've been entrusted. When we get to Acts chapter 20 and Paul's speaking to the Ephesian elders, you get this really wonderful picture there in quite a lot more detail. We'll get there in term, term four uh, about the role that the elders are to play in the 
the life of a church and the benefit that it should have on the congregation as the elders protect them from wolves and feed them God's word and all that sort of thing. Yeah, I really like how it um, fulfills the whole goal of Acts, you know, going to make disciples of yeah. all nations yeah. um, and not just make converts of all nations. You know, they don't just drop in at Antioch yeah, and drop yeah. in at Lister and say, all right, believe in Jesus and then head out yeah, yeah, and you're right. on your own. Good luck. It is. I did a bit of a word study in, in um, preparing the sermon about the, um, the language used in Acts 14 about strengthening the disciples and strengthening the believers. And that comes up so many times throughout the book of Acts. And you don't think of that typically as one of the main themes of the book of Acts. You think about evangelism and frontier Mm. mission and the gospel to the ends of the earth. But Luke is going out of his way to demonstrate that that's actually a really integral part of um, the mission of God is to win disciples and establish them in their faith to know Christ and to make him known, you might say. Yes. Uh, and so we're, we're right to have both those impulses. We want to see the gospel make progress to new people, but we want those people who the gospel wins to be grow well and be strengthened. Yeah. yeah, great. The last question requires careful listening because it's about 12 questions in quick succession. Sure. <laughs> in verses 24 to 26, there's this big journey described, mm. but it's really rapid, very brief. Um, why does it? I guess, why does it get any airtime at all, but then so little airtime? Yeah. And what's the time frame? Yeah. Um, what is it talking about when it talks about the work being complete? Yeah. What's going on? Um, I think in some ways Luke is just kind of tying off loose ends. He's trying – because it is so abridged, mm. it feels a bit like, well, he's wanting to get to the punchline of, of the missionary journey, which is their report to the church in Antioch and uh, that a door of faith has been opened to the Gentiles. But he's just, he can't, you know, by the time he finishes the incident in Lystra, he's still, you know, half a continent away. So he's got to explain how they get there. So he does it in a couple of verses. I think that's kind of what's going on. It's, it's again, I don't think it's the main focus of the passage. I think verses 21 and 22, the message about going through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, that's what this thing, whole chapter is yes. really about. Um, but uh, it, it, it is a fascinating way to describe it, as Luke says there, that they've uh, come back uh to now having completed the uh, the work of God for which they well the work that they'd now completed that's the language of chapter 13 where they were actually commissioned so when the church in Antioch are praying uh, and fasting the spirit says to those gathered there set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them um, it doesn't actually say what that work is or no. where that work is to take place it just says, I've got some work for them to do. And then the next thing you know is they're, they're off there traveling. It, the Spirit, as far as we know, didn't say to them, first I want you to send them to Cyprus, then to Pisidian Wrap up Antioch. In Antioch. And, yeah. <laughs> he just says, I've got work for them to do and set, you know, set them apart. And now they come back and they say, we've done that work. So they had some sense, I think, mm. of a completeness of the task. That It was not their goal in this journey to go everywhere in the world. It was to go to these places. And I, I just... I. I it's so enticing to me that um, anyone in ministry can say job done because I feel like in ministry <laughs> that is something that we so rarely get to ever say. The work yeah. is never finished. There's always, always more to do. Well, that's what I thought. They're not in Australia yet. Keep going, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I, I often talk about how um, since going into ministry, I love gardening now. Yeah. I love mowing Sense the lawn. Yeah, because mm. it's finite. There's an end to it. I can look and say job done. And ministries does not provide that yes. kind of uh, completion kind of sense. But Paul and Barnabas here are able to say, we've gone, we've preached, we were rejected a bunch of times, 
And nevertheless, God God opened a door. People came to faith. We've you know appointed elders. There's been some progress, and now we're you know finished. Tick. And uh, I I don't know whether that's something missing in in me or in the mindset of gospel workers, perhaps. But I'm intrigued. Uh, certainly, we're going to be able to say that. Uh, one day when yes. we stand before him, we'll say and the race is won. Yeah, yeah, Lord, we've we've done the work to which you've called us. My my lot is done now. I long for that day, but I I think even before then there might be some room for every now and then saying, Lord, I've completed the task for which you've called me. At least this task, yeah, and uh, to rest and rejoice and give thanks in those things. Some food for reflection yeah. for sure. I don't know how to apply it yet. Teaching's the same, by the way. Yeah. I I don't mow a lawn, but. Any, I like wiping down a kitchen bench. Like I look at that for the five minutes that it stays clean and I think, oh, good job done today. But Very maybe we need to find that in our, in our gospel lives too. I think so, yeah. yeah. Well, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Um, I need to re-listen to your sermon because I've heard only good things, um, but I listen to it with tired ears. Oh, no worries. And so I'm excited to hear it afresh, especially with this to think about. Um, What's going on there? And we'll pray that you continue to be restored to full health this week. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for listening and we look forward to next week. This has been a Wollongong Baptist Church podcast. You can listen to past sermons and deeper podcasts and also find information about our Sunday services at our website, wollongongbaptist.org.